Well, I trust this summer is going well with all of you, that you've had some time to rest and relax and have some time of re-energizing and, and resetting, maybe. Some of you have already vacated your normal routines and had some time away. For others of you, it's still coming. You saved your vacation for right at the end of summer. The calendar says that we're just starting the back half of summer. And that kind of coincides nicely with where we're at in our series this summer as we're just starting the back half of the letter of 1 Peter. And we're starting to see as we go through this letter that it speaks very encouragingly to our times. It's sort of equipping us and fortifying us for the days in which we live in this time of history, a time that is at best confusing and strange and at worst, maybe kind of scary as we look out into the horizon. Our world, in many ways, seems very lost. So it's hard to predict what's coming next. And that can bring with it a sense of anxiety and fear to us who are believers. And especially for us who are believers who are trying to understand our times and trying to understand what our place is in these confusing times, it can be a little bit jarring and upsetting. As we're seeing more and more, God's ways are very much at odds with the ways of the world. And these differences are becoming increasingly more glaring. As I described it a few weeks ago, there's a clash that's happening with the way the Bible presents itself and the way we're told to think and act, and the way the world tells us we ought to think and act. If we aim to follow God's laws, if we aim to follow God's ways, which are set out in God's word, we will be at odds with those who are steeped in the wisdom of the world. If we're committed to thinking and living according to God's word, we're going to be at loggerheads with the world, or as the world is now telling us sometimes, telling Christians, that you are living on the wrong side of history. Have you ever heard that? We are on the wrong side of history. History is progressing, and we're stuck in the past. We're stuck in some ancient text. So they say. Well, First Peter was written for that kind of situation. It was written originally to Christians living in a different time, We can grant that, but with similar conditions. It was written to Christians who were likely living in fear. The times in which they lived were a bit scary. They didn't know what was coming next, but they knew that if they were going to live faithfully as Christians, it could generate various degrees of opposition, various degrees of hostility. Again, if they were living faithfully as Christians. But Peter's aim here is to encourage them, and like I said, to fortify them, to strengthen them. And God's aim for this letter is to encourage us. This is why he preserved this letter and inscripturated it. It's to, to encourage us to keep living faithfully and courageously. And also at the same time, as we live faithfully and courageously, to also live kindly and gently and respectfully in this kind of climate all the while entrusting ourselves to our Heavenly Father. And we want to see 
And if we want to see a human example of how to do that, we need to set our gaze on the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're looking for a human example of how to live in times like this, we need to set our gaze on Christ. If we always have Christ fixed in our sights, Christ as our sin-bearing Savior, Christ as our example, then we can live in this earth without fear. Staying firm to our convictions, while at the same time doing good to everyone, treating everybody with dignity and respect, even if, and here's the important thing that we're going to start seeing from a different angle, as we keep going through this letter, it's going to show us different ways of looking at that, even if, even as, we may suffer for living as Christians. Peter is going to introduce, he sort of referred to it a little bit earlier in chapter 2, but he's going to spend the rest of this time now talking about suffering. How we suffer as Christians, but how we can continue to move forward with courage and with strength. In other words, we can live under the blessing of God even as we suffer. We can live under the blessing of God even as we suffer. We often don't connect those two things, do we? Blessing and suffering. We, we sometimes naturally and humanly can't put those two together. And we have certain movements within the church, inside the church, that don't help us with that. Movements like the so-called prosperity gospel have not helped us out. They've tried to sell people a bill of goods that says we can only be blessed in prosperity. For them, suffering and blessing cannot coexist. They live in separate rooms. They live in separate houses. They have no category, those that believe in the prosperity gospel, for suffering. And when suffering happens, they have to scramble and, and, and try to find some kind of explanation. Usually initiated by humans and usually blaming it on some sin or on some lack of faith within the people that are suffering. But Peter's letter tells us, and indeed Paul's letters too, indeed all of the New Testament and the Old Testament, as we read in Psalm 56 a little while ago, they tell us that blessing and suffering do coexist. And not just a a, a grudging coexistence where they have to live together, but a beautiful and glorious coexistence. I just want to show you that with two places earlier in 1 Peter that we've already covered and then sort of bring it together in the passage that we'll be looking at today. So, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. The, the section that we're at today will be 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 13, which is, if you're using the Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the chairs in front of you, and this is at the beginning of page 1016, but just turn back a little bit to 1 Peter 2, and the last half of verse 20. It says, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. If you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Verse 21, for to this, to suffering, you have been called. To suffering you have been called. Because Christ also suffered to you for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So keep that in your minds. We've been called to suffering. Called by God to suffer. This is not just something that happened because of something that went wrong in the Christian life for someone. We've been called to suffering. Now go over to chapter 3, verse 9. 
1 Peter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So you got those same words there. For this, to this you were called. So as Christians, we have been called, we were converted, and we can count on two things happening. At the same time, coexisting, suffering and blessing. We've been called to suffering, we've been called to bless and to be blessed. Now let's jump ahead to our text today, to chapter 3, verses, verse 13, and we'll see how suffering and blessing are not in any way incompatible. They're not in any way opposites. The blessed life, the happy life, it's another way to describe this blessing, the happy life or the, the life under the favor of God, if you want to put it that way, includes suffering. In fact, we can be so bold as to say suffering is God's blessing. Should you be ready to say that? Suffering is God's blessing. So follow along as I read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13 down to verse 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So back in verse 11, he'd gone to Psalm 34. He said, let him who... Let him turn away from evil and do good. So verse 13, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And then this, for it is better to suffer for doing good, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We'll go up to there today. So we saw that we've been called to suffer. We've been called to bless and to be blessed. And look again at verse 14. If, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be favored. Down in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Friends, we don't have to explain suffering away as somehow being caused by unconfessed sin or by a lack of faith. Now, some of those things, of course, can contribute to suffering. But that's not the only explanation. Suffering is a blessing. Suffering, if it happens for the right reasons, is described here as better. And and just to really bring it home, suffering for doing good is God's will for the Christian. Now, As we go through this, let's just all be truthful and admit, and I will be too, that none of us looks forward to suffering. Suffering is not something we naturally embrace. Suffering is not something that is pleasant. The fact that suffering is a blessing does not mean we should go looking around for suffering. But Peter's going to tell us a little bit later in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 12, that you should not be surprised by suffering. As if something strange were happening to you what Peter says there. But he says, you can rejoice 
insofar, and this is the key, you can rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. There's the connection. There's why we can walk through suffering, because our Lord and our leader, the one that goes before us, has also experienced suffering even while doing good, even while never doing anything wrong. Right after that again in chapter 4, verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Insults leading to blessing. Insults are God's blessing. Suffering is not pleasant. It's not something we should actively seek and pursue. But if, when we do suffer for doing good, it is a cause for joy. Why? As I just mentioned, because Jesus always did good. He was sinless, and yet he suffered. He was reviled and mocked. He was insulted. He was ultimately killed. And so as Jesus' followers, we can, in fact, embrace suffering because we share now in Christ's sufferings. And that is both a privilege and a blessing. Is it not? And so the rest of 1 Peter is going to expand on that. But let's go back to our passage. I said that this idea of suffering for doing good is what, uh, what, what encloses this passage. See, they're beginning and at the end. That's the formula in verses 13 and 14 and in verse 17. And it, it's been really like this the whole time as we've been going through. As Christians living in this world, we're expected, God expects us to do good to everyone no matter how the world treats us. Do good to everyone. In fact, verse 13 says we should be zealous for what is good, eager to do what is good, knowing that no one can ultimately harm us. But even our doing good can lead to suffering. Yet suffering for doing good is a blessing. So, suffer, we do good, and it comes out as blessing. So, With all that in mind, the gazillion dollar question that's answered there in the middle is how? Got the two ends. The middle's going to tell us how we can do this. How can we, as Christians living as strangers in this world, as exiles in this world, possibly get to the point where we can see and experience suffering as a blessing? How do we get there? This is not natural. We, We try to avoid suffering. So how do we see suffering as a blessing? As Christians, we all want to live under the blessing of God, but how can we get there knowing that the path to blessing might possibly include suffering? Well, Peter starts by addressing our fears. He starts right where we're naturally at when we think about this topic of suffering. I don't know if I want to go through that. It sounds kind of scary. And suffering is a fearful proposition. I don't think anyone is here today saying, bring it on. Even though we might know in our hearts that Christ suffered, even though we are sure suffering is part of the Christian life here in this time, before heaven, when it comes down to it, we're scared of what might happen to us. Specifically, what people might do to us, what people might think about us, and what people might say about us. It's that last part I hear, hear, um, what people might say about us, that 1 Peter is thinking especially about. This really isn't talking here about physical persecution. We often think about that when we think about suffering, our physical pains and people coming at us to threaten physical harm, even though that is also a lot of times part of suffering. But this is talking more about verbal abuse, 
insults, reviling. Down in verse 16, it says, when you are slandered, those who revile you. So it's people speaking against you. We really do live in a bit of a minefield these days. Even if we are committed to doing good, even if we are committed to seeking peace and subjecting ourselves to to some of the areas that went through to secular politicians, talked there about citizens at the end of chapter 2, even though we might have to subject ourselves to unfair uh, employers, bosses, even though we might have to subject ourselves to unbelieving family members, talked specifically there to Christian wives who have unbelieving husbands, we are, by nature of our Christianity, susceptible to slander and insult and false accusations, even though we are doing good. Even though we're kind and good and nice, for some reason, that niceness, that kindness, can irritate and infuriate non-Christians. Our our doing good is so radical and it's so unexpected, it's so out of order the way the world thinks, who always wants revenge, who also always wants to pay back. So when we don't do that, it actually incites the unbeliever's fury. And that can intimidate us. To the point where sometimes we're even tempted to change course. And we might even be tempted sometimes to throw in the towel. This isn't worth it. Why do I need to go through this? Well, before we get intimidated to that point, Peter anticipates our apprehension and those anxious thoughts with some assuring words. Middle of verse 14, have no fear of them. No fear of those who are going to cause you suffering, nor be troubled. He says, don't let them intimidate you. And we have to remember here that Peter had already learned this lesson personally. Do you remember when Jesus first got arrested? Peter was so bold. He was as fearless as they come. He said, never am I going to leave you. Remember that? He's the first one to jump out in the water. Bold, fearless. Yet at the moment of truth, after Jesus had been arrested, which he couldn't make sense of, When he was sitting around a fire just a short distance, actually, from Jesus in proximity, sitting around the fire there, and people started asking him and started recognizing him, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you connected with him? Remember what Paul did? He denied knowing him. He denied any connection to Jesus out of fear. Peter probably thought, I'm going to be next if I show that I'm connected with him. I'm sure Peter thought of that day often, thought of his fear, thought of his failure, thought of that look from Jesus after he denied him the third time. Jesus passed by and sort of gave him that look. Peter would have remembered that, but Peter would not let that happen again. And now as as a bold and courageous apostle and as a witness, For Jesus, he encourages these fearful Christians with these words. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't be intimidated. Don't be frightened. Don't be troubled by them. Rather, entrust yourself to the Lord. That's what this is all about, entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. 
That's the other side of the coin. Here's how we can combat that fear. Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So don't fear them, but in your hearts, honor Christ as holy. He says the way to combat fear is to set your mind on Christ. To do what we were singing. See Him as holy. It's basically seeing that we have to exchange the fear of people that we naturally have for the fear of God that we don't naturally have, but that we need to continually try and do to set apart Christ, to hallow His name. He's basically saying that, that that's what we need to do. It's an exchange that's going on here. And that's an important point. That's something we all struggle with all the time. The fear of man. Fear of people. We worry about what unbelievers might think of us. And sometimes that fear can serve to paralyze us. It makes us lose our zeal. And before we know it, we try to please people rather than please God. Can you relate to that? I know I can. But we have to remember Jesus' words from Matthew 10, verse 28. Where he talks about fear. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Don't fear those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The way to do that is to think highly of Christ, to regard Him as holy, to recognize Him as Lord, to to worship Him, to hallow His name. Honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do not fear them, but honor Christ the Lord as holy. A commentator by the name of Edmund Clowney says that when we do this, this will break the throttling grip of fear. Setting him apart as Lord means bowing before him in adoration of praise. And a praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. A praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. Fear of another sort takes possession of our hearts and minds. A fear that does not flee in terror, but draws near in awe and in worship. It does not run away, but it draws near, draws closer. Have no fear of them, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Well, a second form of blessing comes when we see suffering as an opportunity to talk about our hope. We see suffering as an opportunity to talk about our hope in God. One way we can honor Christ as Lord is by, last half of verse 15, always, not sometimes, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for your hope. One of the things that we've been seeing here in 1 Peter is that our good conduct, in the face of what might be insults and mistreatment, when we don't rebel, when we don't write an angry letter, when we just keep responding kindly, is that our good conduct has two effects on unbelievers. Two opposing effects, actually. First, we do good so that it might provide an outlet for the gospel to be seen and heard. We do good so that it might be an outlet for the gospel to be seen and to be heard. We saw that back in chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct honorable so that even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. To what end? So that they might glorify God on the day of visitation. So you're doing good, 
They're speaking against you as evil. But as they see your good deeds, they may at some point go, what is going on with those guys? It's got to be something different. And they might end up glorifying God on the day of visitation. Or chapter 3, verse 1, speaking to Christian wives, when they do good to unbelieving husbands, it says they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the effect is that your good behavior, your gentle and quiet spirit, as it talks about there, might lead to their salvation. So you're preaching without words. We notice here that our righteousness, our being zealous for what is good, might lead to someone asking you for a reason for your hope here in chapter, later in chapter 3. So in the first two, it was without a word. It was just they, they're watching. They're seeing your actions. And here, all of a sudden, it says that our words might lead them. We have to be ready to, to, to ask them. So they're, they're initiating this, but we've got to be ready for, with an answer. They may ask you to tell them about your hope in God, about your faith in Jesus. Are you ready for that? Our responsibility is to always be prepared, always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks. This is one way we honor Christ as Lord, by always being prepared to talk about our hope. So how can you prepare for that? What can you do to get ready to speak a word about your faith to someone who asks? Are you going to be stuck? Are you going to be tongue-tied? Now let me help you with that by having us think about how we prepare for our day. What do you do when you get up in the morning? How do you prepare for the day that's coming? What do you do in order to get ready for the day ahead of you? We all have different routines, but I'm sure all of, for all of us, they would include some of these things. In order to get prepared, it includes getting dressed, it includes getting cleaned up, and it includes something to eat. Right? Those three things. You get dressed, you get cleaned up, whatever it is, you brush your teeth, you wash your face. Um, the majority of you have to do something about your hair, you know, whether it's a comb or brush or hat, you know, for most, again. Some have the privilege of not having to worry about that. But you get dressed, you get cleaned up, and you eat something. Well, those might be good categories to think about in being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you to talk about your hope. Getting dressed might refer to your character and your actions and your virtues. And the Bible often talks this way, about putting on some of these things, wearing them, virtues as clothing. For example, Colossians 3, verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, as those who are holy, has been set apart, those who are beloved, put on then, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, put all those things on. People can see what you're wearing. And these are the kinds of clothing, the kinds of virtues that might get people's attention and make them at some point ask you about your hope. What? What is with that patience? How can you be so patient? How can you be so kind? What is it that's making you like that? It's not natural. It's one way you can get prepared. Let these be the things you're wearing. The second way to prepare is to clean yourself up. This is related to the first, but it really means to be holy. To be holy. Now remember, we don't ultimately 
cleanse ourselves from our sin. We get cleansed through the righteousness of Christ as we trust in him. The Bible says that he washes us. He uses those cleaning words, right? He washes us white as snow. He blots out our sins as far as the east is from the west. But now that our salvation is complete, we have to strive for holiness. We are still stained by sin, but we're called to always be confessing sin, to always be pursuing righteousness. And so again, this is part of our preparation. Peter already said back in chapter 1, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. As you prepare your face and your teeth and your hair so that you can start your day, keep confessing your sin, keep striving for holiness, putting on holiness. And finally, you prepare for your day by eating something. This gives you strength and, and sustenance for the day. It gets you going. gives you energy. Brother and sister Christian, be prepared to give an answer for your hope by ingesting the Word of God. Have a regular diet of the Word in your life so that when someone happens to ask you for a reason for your hope, they are, are you going to speak out of that which you ingested out of that in which you digested. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. How sweet are your words. Part of your preparation involves being in the Word. Give a priority to the Bible in your daily diet. And maybe as part of, you know, some of you might work out in the morning too to get yourself going. The Bible needs to be part of your workout plan. Always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Arm yourself with the Word. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Go to church. Don't skip church. Make that a priority in your week. Join a ministry. Join a study in which you can grow in your knowledge of God's Word. You never know when you might be asked to share your hope. Be prepared to share something. Know the Gospel. Share the Gospel. Never know when you'll be asked. I wonder if there might be someone here this morning that's maybe here because a Christian man or a Christian woman, a boy or a girl, was prepared to ask or to answer when you had a question about their hope. I'll be out at the light pole. I'd love to hear your stories about that. Maybe you've had the gospel explained and that explanation has made you curious enough to attend church here today, but you're still, you still haven't responded to the gospel. You're here this morning maybe just to see if this is actually legit, what you've heard from that Christian man or woman, boy or girl. Well, I would appeal to you this morning, don't wait. Don't wait. Look to Jesus to save you. Come to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Christian, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And when you're animated by your hope, when that's what drives your life and your behavior and your conduct, even as you're being reviled, unbelievers might ask you about it. What an amazing opportunity. Be prepared for that. Always prepared. And just before we leave that verse... Peter reminds us about our posture while we live in this world as we suffer in the face of slander, as we suffer in the face of hostility and insult and reviling and, and maybe censuring. 
do it. That is, be able to answer these questions, be able to defend your hope. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We're right back again to the Christian posture, the the way of an exile in a hostile world. The way of somebody behaves who doesn't live here, who's, who, who's not part of this world anymore, who's been taken out of this world by faith, but still resides here. There's a certain posture that we must have. And Peter just keeps on beating this drum. And he keeps beating this drum because we're prone to all kinds of things when we think that we're being treated unfairly. When we're having things said about us that are untrue, when we're suffering unjustly, uh, unjustly, we are prone to fight back. We are prone to push back. We're prone to dig our heels in. We're, we're, we're prone to protest. We're prone to, even if we don't protest, to grumble to ourselves or to anyone that might be a listening ear, that might give a favorable ear to our complaints. Or we're prone to withdraw prone to disengage. What Peter calls us to give a word, but to always remember our posture and our attitude. The Christian posture in a hostile world is one of gentleness and respect and dignity. So be bold. Answer when you're asked, but also be humble. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. In this context, that means that you just keep your life consistent. That's what it means to have a good conscience. That you live with integrity so that no one believer has anything by which to accuse you. You're living as a Christian, just following the Lord. You're you're exuding good behavior in Christ. You're being good. You're being kind. You're being gentle. You're being patient. You're being humble toward everyone. When you sin or when you hurt someone, you're quick to repent. You're quick to seek forgiveness from that person. Unbelievers, when you're living like that, have nothing on you. They, they can't say anything bad about you, so they're only left with one thing, and that's slander. They can only say things about you that are untrue. Well, you might suffer under that slander. You might suffer under that slander, but ultimately it's to their humiliation. In the end, it will be to their shame. They will be put to shame. I said there were two outcomes for unbelievers when we suffer for doing good. One is that they might ask you about your hope. That's what we all hope for. That's what we'd all want. That's what we'd all desire. And their asking and your being ready to answer might lead to their salvation. Or the other outcome is that they'll, they'll double down on their insults. But at the end, it's them that will be put to shame. They might try to shame you. But in the end, they will be put to shame. That's God's promise. One earlier it said that they would be quieted, they would be silenced. Now they'll be put to shame. So Peter reminds us about our posture as believers. What is that? Gentleness, respect, a good conscience, good behavior in Christ. This means Christian behavior, Christ-like behavior. So yes, I'm not going to come here and with rose-colored glasses and say, you're not going to suffer. If you do good, you won't suffer. It's not what this says. 
you're doing good might be the cause of suffering, but it is a blessing. It is a blessing. Yes, you might suffer. Yes, you might be called to suffer unjustly. When you suffer for righteousness' sake, when you suffer for doing good, you will be blessed. Blessing comes as you give a reason for your hope. Blessing comes as you keep doing good in the face of suffering. And blessing comes as you fearlessly honor Christ the Lord as holy. Focusing on Christ all the time. Keeping your eyes focused on him. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I seem to end with this a lot. Joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. It's him that we must keep our eyes on. It's him that we must keep focused on. And then we can suffer. Then we can expect blessing through our suffering. What a joy it is to follow Christ. Let's pray.